All over the world, democracy is on the knife's edge. If the West had stood up for democracy, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And at home, we're fighting for the soul of America. We walked up in here amongst hostile people. There's KKK here, there's skinheads here, there's all kinds of that stuff here. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. Don't miss Democracy in Danger, a podcast that's saving government by the people one week at a time. Find us at dindanger.org and wherever you get your audio. We're so ingrained in, in our culture and maybe human, a fallen human nature to be protective of ours and our things. And yet the gospel tells us the exact opposite. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at The Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Empathy in the Age of Schadenfreude with the God Squad. Schadenfreude is the experience of feeling joy because of another's pain. And here to explore this fascinating topic is Pastor Betsy Willette Zierden of St. George Island United Methodist Church. Betsy will be facilitating today. And she's joined by Father Tim Holita of St. Thomas More Co-Cathedral and Rabbi Jack Romberg, who is now retired from Temple Israel, and he's the author of the book, A Doorway to Heroism, a decorated German-Jewish soldier who became an American hero. Before we get started, we'd like to give a huge thanks to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series. And now, without further ado, here is Pastor Betsy Willett-Zierden to start the program. Hi, very happy to be here. And it's also delightful to have my friend and your friend, uh, Rabbi Romberg, back with us. And of course, Father Tim. <laughs> Father Tim, um, also from St. Thomas More. So the, the topic is um, schadenfreude the experience of feeling joy because of another person's pain is, is, is kind of a loose definition. And so I want to start light because we're going to go, we're going to go dark pretty quickly and hopefully we'll come back up to the light because that's what we're here for, right? For encouragement. Uh, so we remember that we had a very fun program around Broadway songs. Were you a part of that one? And remember none of the sound worked. I mean, and then Christy Esquerdo, she said, well, I know that song, and she stood up and started belting it. It was pretty special. So we're going to do a very brief um, clip from Avenue Q. The name of the song is Schadenfreude. Right now you are down and out and feeling really crappy. I'll say. And when I see how sad you are, it sort of makes me happy. Nature, nothing I can do. It's Schadenfreude. 
clock when a waitress falls and drops a tray of glasses. Yeah. And ain't it fun to watch figure skaters falling on their asses? Yeah, sure. Don't you feel all warm and cozy watching people out in the rain? That's Schadenfreude. People taking pleasure in your pain. All right, people taking pleasure in your pain. Schadenfreude, it, it, it seems lighthearted, and sometimes it can be, but then it can go very dark. So what are some of the reasons why people, it's a psychological reaction. Sometimes it's because um, envy, envy, resentment. You just envy somebody, and when you see something bad happen to them, you're like, oh, okay, good. Or justice, this is often... Uh, the root of it, you, you want them to get their comeuppance or get what they deserve. Uh, though the most, I think, darkest one is identity, group identity that helps a person fit into a group. And so it's all about obtaining joy and the humiliation of another group. And if you do that together within your in-group, it becomes very dangerous. But it has um, a element of allowing you to belong to something bigger than yourself. And then there's also social comparison. You know, somebody that appears to be doing really, really well. Uh, you might, like, somebody famous, and they topple from their pedestal and kind of feel yourself going, huh. So not going all the way to the, to the identity piece yet. Can you think of a time when you just felt schadenfreude? Absolutely. The one... Um Kind of, I didn't feel the same joy that somebody else I knew did, but there was a time when uh, Tim Tebow was the quarterback for the Florida Gators, and when they lost uh, the SEC championship game in Atlanta, and they, there was pictures of him crying on the bench. Um, although I liked Tim Tebow for the most part, I, I was kind of like, yeah, that's right. Because um, I was crying many times when he played the Seminoles. But I had a friend who actually put that image on her credit card. <laughs> so that she would see it all the time whenever she bought things. I thought that was interesting, right, that she took that much joy in, in this man's suffering um, because he was our opponent in a football game. Yeah. Uh, so similar to something that uh, Tim saw, uh, I actually just saw a, a negative post about the, uh, about the coach of University of Pittsburgh a basketball team Capel is his name. And because the team has not done as well as everybody thought that he was going to do, and he, he has completely failed to get recruiters for the team, and they, they get transfers in the year as opposed to getting recruiters. And so he was taken down, uh, you know, and somebody was posting about how, how terrible he was because he couldn't even get a recruiter. Well, when I was looking up some thoughts and some quotes on schadenfreude, I came across the definition from Merriam-Webster, and Merriam-Webster Dictionary reported that following uh, President Trump's diagnosis of COVID, the, the search engine increased by 30,500% around the word schadenfreude. So, <laughs> so I guess that, that speaks for itself. Um, I can tell you that, you know, what I... This is a very strange time to come together for the first time, thinking we were going to talk about Schadenfreude, and we know that right now Russia is invading Ukraine. And I have to say that this morning when I saw the BBC report that they did not make 
as much headway. The Russians did not make as much headway as they had, had planned, according to intelligence. I felt happy about that. Is that schadenfreude? Or is that, is that help, a helpful thought because I'm praying for the protection of the Ukrainian people? I, I would say that if we're concerned about a group of people, then of course somebody invading them, that's a, that's a different perspective. You know, so we, we have to be, we have to be aware of what is right and what is wrong. And what is wrong is this invasion of a country for no particular reason other than wanting to have part of that country as part of the other country. And yes, it's not like if, as long as you're not feeling that the other country or that the people there should be dying or should be, you know, what, something like that, but just happy that they're not maybe having the success in conquering that they're having, that's not, that's not the wrong, the wrong ex. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I think this subject was originally chosen was because there was so much division. There is so much division, you know, division in politics, division about wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. Vaccines, not vaccinated, and then, and then we find ourselves today at an entirely different time because of what's going on in Europe. And for me, anyway, I'm hoping it might bring us together. What are your thoughts, Tim? Well, I, I mean, I admit, last night I got home from um, uh, this men's group we do, and it was about ten o'clock. And I checked uh, this guy. I'll look up his Twitter feed because he has pretty up to date things always. And I found him about two years ago, and he was had a video that had just been taken of a, a look, what it looked like a a jet being blown out of the sky over Kiev. And I felt like they thought it was a Russian bomber, and I, I was like, I, my first thought was like, good, right? Um, and then unfortunately, well, I guess if you're, if you're supporting the Ukrainians, my family history is Ukrainian. My last name's Ukrainian. So it's a, yeah, so it's something I, you know, it's been on my mind more than maybe otherwise if it was a different country. But uh, it turned out it wasn't, it was actually a Ukrainian jet that got blown out of the sky by the Russians. So then I was like sad, but I noticed the, the difference in my own response to that. And I think, I think this is what I, we should be attentive to is, we feel a, a sense of joy or happiness if we find out that this, this group that I find the enemy is suffering. And so I feel righteous in that joy. I feel like it's justified to feel this way because I, I'm on this team and they're on the other team and I see them as a combatant or an evil. And, and, and it's very easy to see that, I think, in this example that you raised with this invasion that's going on. But I think the problem is, is that most of the time we feel very justified in our, in our feelings of joy or wishing the suffering upon others because we feel, again, that we're convinced of our own righteousness or the righteousness of our position and the evil or, or the bad of the person that we're opposing. And I think that's exactly the problem of why we're having this conversation is because we've lost the sense of, you know, I, have, has it been presented what, I mean, just as an example, and I'm by no means supporting Russia, but I just, there's got to be, is there more reasons than what I've been told? I mean, I don't know. It, just to have a sort of sense of, of question about what, what is my opponent or the people I perceive as wrong or evil? What, how do they feel about this? Where are they coming from? If I'm convinced absolutely that they're, they're wrong and they're my opponent, then I feel very justified in wishing their suffering. I feel very justified in seeing a plane get blown out of the sky and hoping that, well, I hope it was the Russians, you know, because they're evil and they're bad. But the problem is we take that example and put it in politics or COVID, or whatever else is going on. And I think, then, or as jokingly as I mentioned, uh, football. But it's a great analogy because 
It doesn't matter if Tim Tebow is a good man or not. It doesn't matter if he's a great quarterback or not. He's my opponent. And so he cries and he loses. I'm happy because he's my opponent. Well, the problem, that's fine in sports perhaps, but this is not sports, right? Society is not sports. And if we're going to have a community, we can't be thinking like that and engaging each other like that. So do you think that our culture in particular with our emphasis on, on sports and on winning um, and not just winning in sports, but winning in life, whatever that means to individual people. Does that contribute to this idea of division? Are you asking if I think sports contributes to no, the No, I mean, I'm saying the culture of winning, the culture of, ah. uh, I mean, you, well, that, you compete that, that's, in business, yeah, yeah, compete okay. companies, compete. Yeah. Well, churches compete for members. There are so many different aspects of life that seems to be contributing to this approach of, of creating more hatred and, and whatnot instead of, instead of just going back and forth with each other to discuss things, especially to discuss differences. There is a, an increase in how nasty people start to, to treat each other and start to think about each other. Of course, in politics, uh, this has been going on, you know, for decades now. I mean, in, in politics, back in the 70s and 80s, while there were definitely, you know, disagreements between political groups, and, you know, I would sometimes agree with one group and, you know, disagree with a, a different group. And back in the 70s and 80s, uh, early 80s especially, you know, it didn't matter about a political party with their their perspective. Well, what has happened really starting in the 90s. It started to really occur in the 90s more and more. And and that is that if you were of a certain political party, then the other political party was starting to condemn you more and more and more in a deeper, deeper way. And now it's at the point where it is impossible for people from different political perspectives to actually sit down and try, try to figure out a way to solve a problem that both parties may agree that the problem exists, but they will not really interact with each other in a positive way or in a, at least in a way that was done back in the 80s, you know, early 80s and in the 70s and so forth, or in the 60s. Let's, let's go back to the 1960s when civil rights were presented for President Johnson to get done. Well, the Religious Action Center, that is the rack of the reform movement, that is my Jewish movement, uh, the rack down in, you know, in Washington, D.C., had their offices, and they were the ones who invited senators to come and figure out how to put together the civil rights bills that were going through. And guess what? The senators that were there were a group from the Democratic Party and a group from the Republican Party. Okay? So we're that not, would never happen now. Right. Which is why we're having this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> right? So what's, why wouldn't it ever happen now? And what needs to happen in order for it to happen now? Like what kind of change or shifts uh, can we as people of faith, we are thinking people, what can we do differently? I know we talked about one of the, the root causes is that we don't, we're being invited to 
consider the other person as not human in some sense, and we have lost our ability to empathize with those that think differently, vote differently. You wanted to talk about empathy. Do you want to say anything about that? It's just this, I mean, as a pe person of faith, we're supposed to think of others as better than ourselves. I think. Well, I think the challenge, and I think we would all, if we've if we've ventured into the wastelands of, of social media, we've experienced that this is like a way worse situation than it might be what I encounter in my day to day life. Um, after the election, the previous election, I, I preached on just. I went through my day. It was kind of a weird homily, but it was entertaining, I guess. I said, you all want to hear about my day on Friday? And they're like, yeah. They probably were like, what? You know, but it was an interesting day. I mean, I took them through my whole day. And my point was, it was a beautiful day that I had had and, and a lot of different encounters. And my life is, is very rich as a priest. And But the point was that none of my day had anything to do with Joseph Biden or Donald Trump. And like, let's look at my concrete existence every day and, and your concrete existence every day. Like, why am I going to spend all this time being angry and mad and fighting on the internet? Like when my, my, the people around me, we're not like that with each other and the people I encounter are not like that. And I feel like online people become faceless and I, I, it's hard for me if we could disagree on something, right? But you're my friends and we've spent time together and have a relationship and I trust you and you trust me. I hope that, that we want the good so that even if we had a complete disagreement on something, I trust that you're looking for the good. And so I can't say horrible things. I can't attack you like that or, you know, in a personal way or something. I wouldn't want to because I, I have this, this sense of respect. But on the Internet, I think we lose that sense. We don't have the face of the other. We don't have the relationship. We don't have the trust. We don't have the investment. And so I think it, it really opens the door to even more teaming up, you know, um, and isolation and disintegration and so on. Can I sure. add a little something? actually not a little something, a big something, which is that the differences between people that causes problems is not just in politics. There's also problems in religion. And I'm not saying that it's a problem because Tim is Catholic and I'm Jewish. That's not the problem. The problems exist within every religious group within Jews, within Catholics, within Christians, within, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, Protestants and so forth, uh, within Muslims. You, you take the major religious group and there are groups within each religious group that condemns people that are not like them, okay? People that don't agree completely with them about religion, about the way they look at God the way they want others to just look at God or look at, look at, you know, religious life exactly the way they do. And that exists all over the world, just as, and, and in our country, just as differences over politics exist. And yes, are there connections between some things in politics and some things in religions? Yes, absolutely there are. But if we look at the overall picture, it's very problematic and, and very upsetting that you, when you see how certain groups of a religion or certain groups of people within a particular religion 
do, don't take care of others, don't have empathy for others. They just want them to be like themselves. Right. And we've talked about that or touched on it many, in many of our programs. And we've also noted that the very best and deepest parts of faith groups generally have the um, golden rule, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, Sufi mystics, for example, and Islam, I mean, there's so much more connection. Mm-hmm. There's so much more connection, and, and religion can actually produce this sort of environment that all human beings can flourish, and that's why we're here, and that's why we have a God Squad panel, because we're, we, we already know what the problems are. They're in our face. They're constantly in our face. So what are we going to do differently? I think we begin, for one thing, by recognizing how connected we are as a web, the uh, the topic of Schadenfreude is, is maybe a good launching point, but honestly, I sit in here today and I told you this on the phone. I'm like, I really just want to cry because <laughs> I'm so happy to see you all, and it's been such a really long couple years, right? So I'm I want to cry because I'm I'm joyfully, sincerely happy to be here again and have conversations and see your faces, and I'm also really sad because of what's happening around the country, but especially in Ukraine. And I don't really know that we have a lot of answers other than the reality of being together in our pain, being together in our hope, being together in our friendships, um, and exploring what that means. Uh, We um, at the Village Square often uh, reminds us that local is where it's at, right? We make the biggest and, and most significant changes sometimes are just the smallest incremental changes that we that take place in our neighborhoods or in our relationships with one another. Um, we had a good what hour conversation the other day, and it just felt so good to talk to you. So I don't, I'm not a very good moderator today because I have no interesting questions. <laughs> I just uh, want to say it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you. So, Jack. Take it over. <laughs> Actually, it, it's getting close to the time when we might take some some questions or some comments. But well, before we do that, Tim, you look like you're about to say something. Well, I was, yeah, I was just going to say, I think what, what can happen to all of us is, I know I get into these conversations with people and we can spend an hour, you know, over a cigar and drink, like complaining about the world and the media. And why isn't this happening? And we have to do this. And you can just feel very powerless in the face of everything. And I was at the grocery store last night and then one of the men working there, we were, he was trying to help me find something, and he, he said, oh, I noticed you're a, I was like a priest, I guess he didn't know what to say. And um, I said, yeah, I'm a priest. And he says, okay, what do you think about what's going on in the world right now? I didn't know exactly what he was referring to, so I just said, well, I don't think it's good. I'm very concerned. I said, but I have a lot of hope. And I said, because I feel like the darker things get, the lighter, the brighter the light is. I feel like people, human beings haven't changed fundamentally Ever so, there's still this desire for the good. Like I have a lot of hope as well, but I am very concerned. So, what do we do? I we feel so powerless in the face of everything. Um, so I can't. Like I'm not. I don't know if you know this, but I'm not an executive at any major news network or media company. In fact, they don't even call me and ask me my opinion on things. It's amazing. I don't know why. Some. I wish they would, you know, they really should. But I'm powerless to do anything like that. I I don't work for anybody in Congress or the legislature here in town. No one calls me and asks my opinion on bills or policy or anything like that. NATO didn't ask me what I thought about this whole thing. So that's, that's, I'm powerless. So what has, in my mind, God given me and my ability to 
to influence or to be is my parish and the people I interact with every day. And so I feel like I want to empower you all because if you're feeling powerless and you're feeling like these problems are so much larger than you, they are. But thankfully, you don't have the burden of managing all of them. And I don't say thankfully in terms of like you would do a bad job. But I mean, thankfully, in terms of that's a lot of burden, right? What's what's great is that you've been given something. You have an opportunity to to make an influence and to make a difference. And it may seem small, but don't uh, shoo that away. It's very important. Don't dismiss that because you interact with people every day, I hope. And if you aren't, I hope you will. Um, and, and it's, I think, to undo in our minds this team mentality and to stop and to start believing in the good of others and to undo these beliefs that we've taken. As I said earlier about these folks, I mean, it, it blows my mind. It boggles my mind that, that something like the Holocaust could happen. It blows my mind because you had to look at these humans. This wasn't something on, a, on, a, on a social media. It, it still boggles my mind that we had segregation in this country not too long ago, right? I mean, there's, there's the people who could look at another human being and say, I don't want to, I don't want you drinking out of my water fountain, or I don't want you at my restaurant. I, I don't understand how that is, but it was a belief system that was faulty. And so we have to, we have to be honest with ourselves too and say, maybe I'm not, my righteousness isn't so intact. Maybe I'm one of the wrong ones. And I think we have to have the humility to do that. And I think if we can do that, then we can open us up to have conversations and yeah. talk. Well, and as I shared earlier, one of the primary dangerous aspects of schadenfreude is when it becomes a part of your identity. And when I looked up the actual German definition, not the English translation of the German, but actually looked at the German Words like malicious and sadistic glee, right? Malicious and sadistic glee, gloating, pleasure and joy from the pain of another, a group identity that rejoices in the humiliation of another group. So while we started out light and we can identify with some of the concepts of schadenfreude, I think one of the warnings here is to pay attention to the emotions that you might have that might contribute to some sort of identity gathering of an identity around you that would allow you to laugh or uh, have, have a sense of joy at the pain of another. That's, that's a dangerous, scary thought, right? But we Very, know that that yeah. is, in fact, what happened with the Holocaust, and that is what happened with... Slavery. It, it, it's it's calling another person less than human, and then taking it upon yourself uh, to determine their fate. I'm hopeful that we have moved away from that to some degree, but I also know that there's places in Europe or in the U.S. Even it wasn't it just this week that there were um, flyers dropped in certain, including the town where the uh, the hostages were taken um, in the synagogue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Did you all hear about that? Some um, well, anti-Semitic flyers were dropped in different cities, in, including the one in Texas. Yes. and, and So it's happening. And there were neo-Nazis in, in Orlando a couple of weeks ago. There was, I mean, there's been all kinds of, of crazy, awful, awful things against Jews, against African-Americans, against Latinos. But let me, let me actually teach something. Okay. It's based on two very famous and historic rabbis from even before the year zero. Their names were Hillel and Shammai. 
and their disciples from centuries later, and by centuries later, I'm talking about, you know, in the 200s or thereabout, um, just like Hillel and Shammai disagreed with each other on so many things, so did their disciples disagree with each other on so many things. And it was determined that the disciples of Hillel and their thoughts, which were more reaching out to people and wanting them to be part of the Jewish, you know, their, their Jewish thoughts and accepting, they were accepting a lot of different thoughts. They were then determined to be the ones whose ideas should become the actual laws that the Talmud would put out and the laws that would be the ones held by the Jewish people as they got even, you know, more and more, you know, developing over the century. Well, the reason why they were thought that they should be the ones accepted is because of their humility. They actually would teach what the disciples from Shammai taught as well, and then add their teaching. They would actually bring up both perspectives and say why their perspective was the one that they believed. And the disciples of Shammai actually did not react violently or badly to them. They actually allowed, for example, the people of each group to marry each other and to be connected to each other. And so having humility and actually caring about each other and the thoughts of each other and the situation of each other, that is part of traditional Jewish teaching. And yet, there is a group among the Jewish people that doesn't pay any attention to it. That doesn't. Okay? And I bet that Tim can say something similar from, from Catholicism and that Betsy could say something similar from your, your well, particular religion. Well, we believe religion. that Jesus was basically a disciple of Hillel. I mean, mm-hmm. many of the statements that he, he made actually could be traced to Hillel's teachings. Yeah, but with yeah. each different religious groups, like I had, I had terrific times with, I'm going back to when I was very young, with a, a priest from the Catholic uh, high school. He invited me and some people to teach about Judaism in his classes. Okay? And he, he had us teach and he treated us with such respect. Now, of course, did he believe everything that we taught? No. But he felt it was important that everybody respect each other and treat each other the right way. I think we have, do we have some, somebody that has a comment or a question? Yes, we have questions. This is Vanessa breaking in here to read the audience questions. But first, we want to take a quick break to share a message with you from a podcast we learned about through our friends at the Democracy Group. Check it out. This is from the Democracy Decoded podcast. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. There's no getting around it. There's a lot to be frustrated about. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? 
I'm Simone Leeper, host of Democracy Decoded, a podcast where we examine our government and discuss innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season one, we'll take you on a journey where we delve into the nuts and bolts of our campaign finance system. We'll look at the effects of secret spending at both the federal and state level, explore where and how foreign governments are spending to attempt to influence American elections, and investigate the fight against the outsized influence wealthy special interests have on local elections. Democracy Decoded is a production of Campaign Legal Center. Find us at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'd like to also give a shout out to our friends over at the Democracy Group. We're thrilled to be part of this network of podcasts that are looking into what's broken in our democracy and how we can all work together to fix it. Okay, so back to the program. Here's our first question for the God Squad today. This is a question for Rabbi Jack Romberg. Someone would like you to comment on the spirit of the Jewish holiday Purim, which commemorates the saving of the Jewish people from Haman, who had a plan to kill them all. But instead, Haman was killed along with many others who were deemed to be part of the plot to kill the Jews. So the person asking the question today says that this seems to be the classic case of someone in the Bible getting their comeuppance or getting what they deserve. And they'd like you to comment on the spirit of the holiday Purim, which commemorates this event. Well, I mean, the spirit of Purim is is the Jewish people being able to survive, okay? We can have a whole talk about should he have been killed or not and, you know, whatnot. Let me put it in this way. There are all kinds of commandments through the Torah calling for the death of people that do something wrong. But in the Talmud, there are almost no rabbis that go along with the idea of killing people who do things wrong. So in Purim, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but for those that you don't, don't know, um, it is sort of a celebration. Kids get dressed up, and there's this mocking of Haman and eating of special desserts, uh, hamantasha. So, but I do think, you know, you're the rabbi. <laughs> it's a celebration of life is what it is. Yes, it's a celebration of life. It's, like I said, it's a celebration of surviving. But, but there mean, is that I mean, should, mockery part should, of it. Should we celebrate the death of people when, okay. when we survive, you know? Okay, next question. In this war that's going on right now, we as Americans sometimes have a feeling of being glad when bad things happen to Russians. But in the whole spirit of this conversation, how do we reconcile this feeling? Like if a Russian plane goes down, do we pray for those pilots and their families who might not want to be there either? Or do we pray for their destruction? That war is a perfect example of what we're talking about. So can you comment on this? Well, I think the Pope, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, asked for us to fast for peace. Um, so I think that's a good thing to do. I I shared that only because I was just being vulnerable and sharing that this was my reaction when I saw it. I was actually kind of like, oh, yeah, get him, you know. Um, is that the right reaction? I, I don't know. I, I was trying to draw a connection to 
the fact that I, I felt justified in that, we feel justified in that because we see when we see the enemy. And that's my issue is I think what we've experienced on a different scale in our country is this schadenfreude for our enemies that are maybe not our enemies. Again, I'm not going to get into a, a geopolitical debate here about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. And I mean, I'm disappointed that it's come to this. I don't know. I just don't understand it. I just think it's awful. But I do, I, I see them as the aggressor. And so, of course, I want them to lose. But you're right. These are people, these are soldiers. Like I was in the military myself, um, who probably just joined to defend their country or wanted to serve or needed some money or whatever it was. And, and now they find themselves in harm's way as well. I, you know, I do, when I think about that, and this is the point, right? When I suddenly, when I look at the picture of a Russian soldier and see this is just some guy like me 20 years ago or maybe a few years ago, but, um, you know, then I, then my feelings change, right? I'm not so joyful about his death, but when he's a, a faceless plane that represents evil to me in the moment, then I'm able to rejoice briefly in my emotions. Have you ever seen the movie Dunkirk? It's a very interesting technique that the director does. I can't think of his name right now, but he, the Germans are faceless and nameless throughout the film. And I think that's done intentionally. The, the planes even almost seem like they're drones. And it's just they're referred to as the enemy. And I think it's an interest. We all know who they are. We know it's the Nazis. We know they're the Germans. But I found it an interesting technique because I think it can be transferred in a way to other things. You know, what, what does this actually represent? in this situation. So when, when they're faceless, it's easy to not have remorse. It's easy to not have empathy. But when I see that, I can think of that, then my feelings change. All right. The next question explores the role of the hater and the hated. Often the hater feels so righteous, like it can feel kind of good to have someone to hate. And that gets groups to form and battle lines to be drawn. But what is it that hurts the hater? Could it be a sense of separation? And so the unity that comes from being in a group feels good. And maybe through prayer or meditation, we can get to a deeper knowing. Can you all comment on that? I, and I appreciate that phrase, deeper knowing. One of the things that I have some hope around is that there's a recognition, at least a growing recognition in certain circles, that we literally live in a web of life. Right, everything affects everything. Every choice uh, that you make affects uh, someone else. A, a real in-your-face example is how oil is going to be more expensive, how heating is going to be more expensive. There's still some places that have deep winter. Uh, you, you know, the, the the poorest in America are going to be hurt because of what's going on there. That's just an economic consequence, but everything's related. And I believe that this idea of dualistic, you're in, you're out, you're the enemy, you're, you're not the enemy, those kinds of frames have got to, are, are dissolving, maybe not quick enough, but they have to dissolve. And one of the things that I found hope in is that NATO, that was fairly weak and wasn't really talked about much, now NATO is like a real thing again. And it's about cooperation. And it's about making decisions together for the benefit of all of our countries. It's not perfect, but th that's hopeful. Do you have anything to say about that? The connection well, of all things? Well, ex except that I, what's going through my mind, especially when he gave his, you know, comment and then when you're adding this, there is a huge difference 
between how we look at things in a war, okay? A war is different in terms of how we react. Yes, we're upset about the war. We want the country that that starts it, we, we want them to lose, especially if they're doing something really awful. But but here is is something that we have to think about a lot more. What is how wrong it is for somebody to be happy when, say, an African-American suffers, suffers from a policeman who does the wrong thing, or suffers from, you know, the current example of not KKK, but, you know, uh, you know white that's, supremacists. That's called evil. Yes, there yes. But there are people who are happy to see the suffering. There are people who are happy to see what's happened what's happened to the Jews. Okay? There are people that they're happy to see the suffering of others who are different from them. We know that. Yes, exactly evil. we know that. Of course we know that. But that, you know, that is an obvious difference that is still not being addressed in the right way. And it's much harder, it's much harder to have certain feelings about what's going on with the war. Yes, we certainly don't want Russia to win. We don't want them to take over the Ukraine against, you know, what the people in the Ukraine want. But it's different looking at that and looking at something that begins with something that's gone wrong with something that has been done wrong by people versus looking at something that that is is just a terrible action against somebody who is different from us okay and and we have another question you know, so yep okay this next question is about entitlement it seems that compromise went out the window when we started getting more entitlement in life and that entitlement has led to these feelings that we're talking about now, joy and someone else not succeeding. So maybe getting rid of the entitlement would help. What do you all think about that? Yes. And in fact, actually, going back to the idea of empathy, uh, it, it teaches in the Bible, what I would say in Hebrew, the Tanakh, that is the, the old Testament as opposed to the new. It teaches specifically, and also in the Talmud, it teaches that we should be doing things to help people who are poor or who are needy. And if it also says specifically, I could actually pull out and read for you exactly what it says in the Talmud, that if we see something being done sinfully against the wrong uh, against people who suffer we actually should stand up and protest against it it says it in the it says it in the talmud um, um you preach from the lectionary right so you've been doing the gospel of luke love your enemies pray for those who spitefully use you if somebody asks for your coat you you know give them yeah right? last week yep right? last yep. week so the attitudes the week before right and and when you preach that, or when you hear that, or when you read that, it's so lovely, and it's so poetic, and it's so almost impossible to, to 
live that way. I don't, I'm curious about how, how you encourage your congregation, but I encourage my congregation to remember that what, what Jesus is calling us to is love and it's heart, heart tough love and not tough love like, uh, it's tough on yourself to love your enemies. It's, it's tough on yourself to give away things. We're so ingrained in, in our culture and maybe human, a fallen human nature to be protective of ours and our things. And yet, the gospel tells us the exact opposite. And this, these are not my words. They were words of somebody I follow. Um, he said, you know, love is your superpower. Love is your superpower because love is what actually transforms the world. And here's what love looks like. Give to all those who ask you. Go ahead. I just, uh, just a brief excerpt from my thoughts on that was uh, the, the first reading that we had, maybe it was the same, was, was David uh, not killing Saul when he has the opportunity. He takes the, the spear and the, and the jug. And I'd, be interested, I'd be curious to hear what the rabbis take on that. But because he's afraid of, of, he can't touch the Lord's anointed. He's afraid. It's really kind of, it's not a selfless thing. It's more like, oh, I don't know, if I, if I touch the Lord's anointed, I'm going to suffer for this, right? David was not like a merciful person throughout his life. There's a lot of examples of him not being so. And then the gospel with, with Jesus saying this to love your enemies, but he says, when you do this, when you forgive your love your enemies and you do good to those who hate you, you are like the, you become like the children of God who is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. And so my message to everybody was that often we hear that he's kind to the wicked and ungrateful. I think, oh, those, those other people out there, the Russians, right? But no, I am the wicked and the ungrateful. And so is everybody in my parents. And when I see that, that my need for mercy, and then I see that I shouldn't want to harm anybody, even my enemy. Saul was David's enemy. He was afraid to touch him because he was anointed, because he was the king. My belief that you are all anointed, and I should be afraid to hurt you, even if you're doing bad to me. And so I think that's the key is, again, to see myself as I am the ungrateful and the wicked. I'm in need of mercy and you are my brothers and sisters in that, instead of seeing myself as, well, I'm the right one and you're the wrong one. Do you want to say anything? Uh, only that I don't see any of us as being evil, but what we should be looking at ourselves is being aware of what can push us into evilness. And if we are aware of it, then we can, you know, move ourselves in a, in a better direction. Now, do I so disagree with the way the Catholic Church, you know, teaches on this? Well, in a way, I disagree with the idea that, you know, all of us, you know, are, are wicked or evil in some basic way. But no. That's not what I'm saying. It's, okay, good, think, good. I, a, good. I'm, I'm, I have been wicked in my life. Okay, and, and, and you know and what? I'm not it's now. Also, and, also, and I have been wicked in my life, too. Okay. He's quoting the, the text. He's right. quoting the text. The, the, the question then is, is the, the, not the question, but the, the aspect that we should have then is knowing that each of us have done something that is wrong. Okay. And not to hang on it and not to, meaning hang on it, like to keep doing the same thing. What we need to do is to get ourselves to move in the different direction. As we say in Hebrew, teshuvah, to change our direction into a better direction, heading towards God in a positive way. Is there any others before I make a final comment? Yes, one last question. 
Can you discuss the two sides of righteousness, the two ways to look at righteousness? Well, I'd love to have more conversations about that. I don't know that we have time to talk about two kinds of righteousness, but I love that you use the word righteousness, because what I was going to share is that the text that says that um, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. So what that was saying to me is that God allows us to feel the sunshine, uh, the breeze, allows us to have the uh, the human joy of being parents or grandparents. That is who God is, and that's who we should be, merciful like our God is merciful. So let me actually give an answer that is based on a very, very famous saying in the Torah in Deuteronomy, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. Okay, tzedek is the word that is translated in two ways. One is word you use, righteousness, okay, or righteous. But the other way, another way it is translated is justice, which means that we should actually be in favor and work on both, acting righteous in terms of acting the right way and being favor of justice. Justice is for people way beyond us. Justice is for people all over the place. And we have to have both. All right. Well, I wish we had more time, but I'm glad to see all of you. All right. This is Vanessa back with you to close us out today. We hope this program was maybe especially thought-provoking because these are things that we often wrestle with personally that we often don't admit to others. And that's what I find fascinating. The God Squad embraced this very human topic And right out of the gate, they had to own up to their own feelings of schadenfreude. Well done and mad respect from me to you. Now, I've got to tell you guys a story that I think is just so important as we consider the takeaways from this topic. So, you know, Liz Joyner, our founder and president here at the Village Square, she is a huge North Carolina Tar Heels fan, along with her whole family. And recently, Carolina played Duke in the final basketball game of the season, which was an especially important game for Duke because it was the last game for their retiring beloved Coach K, the winningest coach in college men's basketball. Well, Liz's whole family, being longtime Carolina fans, they were all in for the Tar Heels on this game. And to many people's surprise, Carolina actually won the game, which was pretty devastating to Duke, of course. So after the game, Liz's family is having a major case of schadenfreude, but Liz realizes she is not. So why not, you might ask? Well, right before the game, Liz was texting with her friend Pierce, who went to Duke, and of course, he's a huge fan, and Liz and Pierce were having some friendly banter back and forth about the game, so when Duke lost, Liz thought of Pierce, and she felt the situation in a different way from her family. She was still glad Carolina won, of course, 
but she wasn't happy about Duke's loss and their pain in the way that others were. She cared in a different way because of her relationship with a friend. And this, people, this right here is the whole point. This is why we need true connections with real people in our lives. Because empathy comes from considering what that other person is going through. Now, I know this is a more light and sort of fun example, but the same phenomenon happens with the more serious topics that we've been discussing today. And that's why it's important not to write off everyone who thinks differently from us. So on that note, we are going to close out for today. And we'd like to give a huge thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series. We sure are grateful to them for their support. And we're grateful to you too for joining us as fellow Americans on this bridge building journey. We're also thankful to Bill and Jill Maddox for helping to make this episode possible through their generous donations. To stay up to date with all that's happening with the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us and subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate you joining us for Empathy in the Age of Schadenfreude. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast.